When I told somebody that I was a rape victim and asked, does my life not have value? Somebody on the other tolerant side said that I was an abomination who should not be alive. Wow. And that's when I started telling my story. Welcome to this Sanctity of Life radio special, Hope Out of Tragedy, hosted by the president of Life Issues Institute, Brad Mattis. Any woman who has been raped has suffered a horrific violence and injustice that cannot be erased. Today, you'll hear firsthand from one guest who was conceived through rape and another who became pregnant through rape. Their compelling stories will fill you with the power of God's love and hope. Here now is Hope Out of Tragedy with the president of Life Issues Institute, Brad Mattis. Abortion activists frequently bring up tragic circumstances like rape as an excuse to legalize abortion. We hear it all the time. When they say that, they're saying a life is not worth protecting simply because of the way they were conceived. Well-intended people have accepted this myth that most women want an abortion when pregnant from sexual assault. Well, many do not. I would say most do not. Abortion doesn't erase the trauma of rape. Abortion makes the situation worse. Many women have told me who had abortion as a result of rape felt that they were raped twice. And to impose the death penalty on the innocent child isn't justice, and it gives the rapist more power, not less. Children conceived in rape are just as human and just as real as you and I. Today, we're going to hear both sides of the story. When Mark Rebke's mother was just 14 years old, she was sexually assaulted at a party. His mother bravely kept the child, choosing to place him for adoption. Mark was adopted into a loving Christian home. Years later, Mark is a strong defender of life. He spoke at a rally in Washington, D.C. and delivered a message that was so impactful it went viral with millions of people sharing his story. Mark declared, the circumstances of my conception do not determine my worth as a human being. Ayala Eisenberg, as a child, was repeatedly sexually abused for years. When she was 15 years old, she became pregnant through rape. Ayala began to feel hope. She loved her child and fought to keep her. Tragically, she did have a miscarriage and lost her daughter, Rachel. Now, Ayala is a powerful advocate for life. She has a significant presence on social media where she vigorously defends life. Welcome, Mark and Ayala. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you very much. Mark, can you briefly tell us your story? My story starts at a 4th of July party in 1970. My mom went to that party as a 14-year-old girl and left as a rape victim and a mother. That is where I come from. And for many, many years in this movement, that's not a story I told. I knew it from the very beginning based on my mother's age. There's no way that she could have been legally consenting to anything. So I know that that is what my story has been. It's just not something I was willing to share until leading up to the Dobbs decision. Once the, the decision leaked, there were a lot of events in front of the Supreme Court. And the first people they throw under the bus immediately is, well, what about rape victims? Or what about, you know, children from rape or children affected by rape? When I told somebody that I was a rape victim and asked, does my life not have value? Somebody on the other tolerant side said that I was an abomination who should not be alive. Wow. And that's when I started telling my story. 
Because love me or hate me, I have a right to exist. Ayala, briefly tell your story. So um, my name is Ayala Eisenberg. Um, When I was 15 years old, uh, I was a freshman in high school. I got pregnant from an ongoing sexual abuse that I'd been experiencing for several years. And my abuser was violent with me. He had threatened me with abortion before, so I was absolutely terrified. All I could think to myself, basically, was that there's no way out of the situation. I'm like an animal in a cage. The only thing that I can do is pursue abortion because it was expected of girls. And then I started to engage with pro-life literature that I saw in my local community from uh, the church that I was attending at the time. And I started to see mothers with their children. And, you know, I started to feel empowered by the idea um, of becoming a mother. Despite my circumstances, it made me feel strong to know that I was creating a life despite what happened to me. And unfortunately, I did end up losing my baby. Her name was Rachel. Through her memory, um, want to advocate for children like her because I know that what was traumatic for me was not my child existing. It was my sexual assault. It was my trauma. It was the situation I was in, but my daughter was not um, the problem in that situation. She, in a lot of ways, was honestly the solution. You knew the man who raped you, right? Yes. Was he put in prison for his actions or what is the situation now? I did file a police report. Um, I reported it to somebody in my school administration and their mandatory reporters. So um, I was taken to the police station and they were pressing charges until something happened with the system and they ended up dropping the charges. Nobody in my legal team was really sure why, because he admitted to doing it. So there was no question of whether or not he'd done it but they assume it was some kind of technicality with his confession and he joined the military. And now he gets to live like he didn't do that to me. And that's the unfortunate reality of a lot of girls in my position. Rape is very often not reported and rape is very often not prosecuted when it is. You are so right, so right. Mark, what was your reaction when you found out the circumstances of your conception? There's a lot that plays into this because I was placed for adoption. I was adopted into a family with four adopted children and three natural-born children in my family. We didn't really know a lot about our stories other than some very basic information. I knew that my mother was 14 when I was born, and I don't think there's a state in the union where that's legal. I didn't know until I met my biological mother when I was 19 years old, kind of the circumstances of how that came about. And there's a feeling of shame, especially when you're young. You don't think about things as deeply or as clearly as you do when you're you're older and you have a little bit of, of age behind it and you can look back and go, hold it, I didn't do anything wrong. It's a shame you feel inside like you are lesser, but you're not. You didn't do anything wrong. You can't control the circumstances of your conception any more than anybody else can. And so at some point, you just have to kind of own that. And that day at the Supreme Court, before I step up to the microphone and told my story for the first time publicly, I called my biological mother because it's as much her story as it is my story. And I wanted to make sure it was okay. And uh, her response was, as if it can save one baby, you tell that story everywhere you can. Do you ever struggle with that feeling that you're less than because of the circumstances of your conception? Of course. There's all kinds of different things in there that if you want to find a way to feel bad about yourself, you can. And, you know, as a person who has suffered from depression off and on, when you're depressed, those things come in much stronger and they give you a baseline to beat yourself up with. And that's when you really have to turn and and ask God to take those thoughts from your mind or, you know, help you 
overcome those thoughts because they can become crippling. If you don't feel that you're worth anything, that leads to dark places and you don't need that in your life. Does a group of similar peers exist out there that you can interact with? Uh, yes, Rebecca Kiesling's group, Conceived in Rape, and there is a Facebook group, a private Facebook group of men who are part of her organization who were all conceived in rape. Everybody that's in that group seems to be willing to jump in and share their experience, share their coping mechanisms, and share their faith, which has been quite helpful. Ayala, let's go back to you. What was your healing process like in the wake of that tragedy of rape? It was an incredibly difficult and long uh, process, especially when rape has gone on for years. It's easy for a victim to get into sort of a fugue state where you just completely disassociate from the situation. So it wasn't really like I was processing a single act of rape because, you know, it didn't just happen once, but, you know, it wasn't like one unit of sexual assault. It was like four years of sexual assault hitting me all at one time because I was finally forced to confront the fact that that is what happened to me. It was no longer unspoken, something I didn't think about, something I didn't have to think about. And it was really, really difficult to come to terms with with all of that abuse at once. So it took several years to really be able to talk about it, um, especially in public. Uh, I think that my daughter really helped more than anything. When I miscarried my baby, I felt like I have to report this. I have to get justice um, for her. It was if I'm going to bring a child into the world, I have to stop myself from being hurt. I can't let her get hurt. Um, she gave me a reason to care about myself and about her. And that feeling definitely still lingered after I had my miscarriage carriage. It was very hard, but ultimately, um, I think that I'm strong enough, and I think that all survivors are strong enough. Mark, you had mentioned your birth mother. What was that experience like when you first met your birth mother? I was 19 years old. I was still living at home with my mom and dad, and uh, had just had some pretty serious medical issues. I had to leave college and, and was back home and working. While my mother, who raised me, said she was okay with us asking questions or finding our biological parents, she really wasn't. So that added a whole level of complexity to it. But actually meeting my biological mother, it was great. I mean, it wasn't what I expected. It really was an, an unbelievable kind of thing and the, the timing and the way it happened. I had actually gotten the information about my birth mother's name prior to this when I was still in college. And I went and I got the phone book, which you did back in those days. You actually got the phone book and I photocopied the page of all of the people with her last name. And I started dialing for dollars uh, down the list of people with that name in uh, South Dakota and asking if they had a daughter named Cindy. And I stopped one before the name. I stopped with Lee Schmidt and Leroy Schmidt was the one. So I had to leave college, I had to move back home, I had to get a job, I started working and then I got back into it and I called Leroy Schmidt and Leroy answered the phone. And by then I had actually gotten to see my actual adoption documents. So I knew that it was Leroy that was the one. I'm like, oh, come on, one more phone call. I would have known this months ago, but I called and um, he couldn't hear, he had bad hearing. So he's like, hold on just a second. He yelled for his wife and she came and answered the phone. And I said, do you have a daughter named Cynthia Catherine? And she immediately said, this is Shane, isn't it? Because my birth name was Shane Adam Schmidt. Wow. He knew. And she said, let me get your phone number. Let me get your information. I'm going to have Cindy call you right back. Within 10 minutes, I got called back. A day or two later, she drove the 75 miles to come see me. And we met in a, a little cafe in a small shopping mall in Sergeant Bluff, Iowa. And then it was just story after story after story. But the thing was, is that in my adoption records, 
there was a letter on the very top of all of those records that says, if my son ever comes looking for me, please give him any information on me that you have. So that made it very easy for the judge because back then you used to have to go through a judge and the whole legal process to get an adoption record opened for that letter to be at the very top of the stack when he opened the file or had the file sent to him, that was extremely helpful. When you met with your birth mother, what was foremost on your heart? What did you want to know? Even before I met her, I knew I was loved. Even before I started the search for my biological parents, I went through counseling with my pastor and I felt that was an important thing because he helped me sit down and go, okay, are you prepared to find someone who doesn't want anything to do with you? Are you prepared to find someone that's no longer living? Are you prepared to find someone who's in prison? We kind of ran through all these different scenarios. And for me, my mother uh, was working in a home for disabled children when I met her. I have an artificial leg. I spent a lot of time at the Shriners hospitals in Minnesota. And that you just find these little common ground areas where you have these crosses that you know come together. And yeah, just the connection. I wanted connection. When you're growing up as an adopted kid, there's nobody that looks like you at your family reunion. Everybody else kind of looks a little bit alike, but you don't look like anybody. Didn't really have that until I found my two half sisters and a half brother who, unfortunately for them, look a little bit like me. <laughs> they may not look at it as that way. What was it like to meet your biological father, the rapist? So this is the thing. It wasn't a violent rape. He claims he didn't know she was 14 and she was hanging out with her 18 year old cousin and he was 18. And so from his belief, he did nothing wrong. But as we've been told, left, right and center, rape is rape is rape. She was 14, just barely 14. She could not have consented to that. And so meeting him was difficult. And he's now been gone for 15 years this year. It was always a very unique thing with him. You'd always get some variation of, well, I'm glad I got to meet you, but I thought when I signed my rights to you away, I signed away your rights to me. So it was always a difficult relationship. And he had not been truthful with his wife about the fact that she had heard rumors that a child existed and he had sworn up and down that I didn't. And then I showed up. So that was a, a difficult thing in his marriage. It was a difficult thing for his son who thought he was the only son. It's trauma in a lot of ways for a lot of people. Ayala, I'd like to shift back to you if I could. Why did you decide to choose life for your baby under those circumstances? Well, when you're pregnant, even if you don't really believe that a fetus is a person terrible to you and I. Like, I didn't really believe that when I was 14, 15, um, just because I've never been given that information. You, you still have the understanding that you're growing human life. It's just unavoidable. I started to, I guess, see myself as a mother. I started to see um, that I was capable of it. I think the biggest thing holding me back um, was kind of the subconscious idea that I've been victimized so much. I've had all these things happen to me. Um, I'm clearly not strong. Like I can't stop this guy from hurting me. I, I, I felt demoralized, dehumanized in so many ways. And I think that that was really the biggest thing holding me back. But I think once I realized I was pregnant and once I realized I was growing this child, I was like, well, I'm already doing it. I'm already a mom. I'm already, you know, taking care of my baby. How did your miscarriage impact you? In so many ways. I had my miscarriage when I was in the middle of taking a math exam um, in November of 2018. And I remember going home from the nurse's office and her being like, oh, honey, it's just a heavy period. Like, I don't understand why you're so upset. And I felt like I was losing my mind. I felt like I was coming undone. 
Um, and I went home and I fell into just this incredibly deep depression because I felt like the one thing in my life that I was, I guess, proud of, the one thing in my life that I had been um, actively taking care of and that made me feel like, you know, I was capable of doing something right, just kind of left, died. And that that was horrifying to me. And I, I didn't know what to do. I had no understanding of the fact that a miscarriage could kill me if something, um, some kind of complication arose. So I had all these thoughts going through my head. And years later, not a, not a single single day goes by where I don't think about my daughter, about who she would have been. And it's still very, very difficult for me. But I think in my advocacy and raising awareness for uh, children conceived in sexual assault, talking about um, the fact that my child was not a mistake, my child was not unloved, unwanted, and that children from sexual assault can be and are loved and wanted. I think that's really helped me move through what happened to me. Even if my daughter's no longer here, I want to make sure that every other baby who is conceived from sexual assault, who has the opportunity to have a life, to have love and support and care, that's not taken from them because a woman is scared and doesn't know what else to do. Did you ever have any regrets about choosing life? No, especially after having my miscarriage, there was never a thought that went through my mind that was like, oh man, I should have had an abortion before this happened. And it's like, no, this is clearly horrific to lose my baby was the worst trauma in that situation. I would probably say it deeply affected me and it showed me that, you know, removing my baby from the situation didn't do anything but cause me additional trauma, additional pain, years more struggling, grappling with something that was just enormously difficult. There was no part of that that would have been healing for me. Based upon all that you've been through in your story, what are you doing now to advocate uh, life for unborn babies? I basically do everything that I can. So I've been really active on social media. I have Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, where I've spoken for years about being a survivor of sexual assault, conceiving my baby, and trying to empower other young women who might find themselves in similar situations. Um, I've received countless DMs, messages, comments from women who are in or have been in a similar situation thanking me. I have personally helped several teenage girls who find themselves in that situation choose life. There's not a, a bigger blessing on this planet than having gone through something like that and being able to tell another girl that it's going to be okay and helping her choose life for her baby. But I basically tell my story wherever I can, whenever I can, and it seems to be helping at least some people, and that makes it worth it. You're really going after it, aren't you? Doing my best. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, with all of us, out of the ashes of our lives, God raises up some pretty spectacular opportunities for us to uh, declare the glory of God, doesn't he? <laughs> Mark, I'd like to go back to the event in front of the Supreme Court the day of the Dobbs decision, you had a very unique and somewhat ironic opportunity. Tell us about that. I worked in politics for many, many years before I kind of dedicated myself full-time to the pro-life movement. And in 2002, I built a, a little portable podium, folds up into a suitcase so you can just carry it wherever you need a podium, you can go. The night before the Dobbs decision came out, I got a phone call from somebody who knew somebody in the Supreme Court police, knowing that everybody was going to be on duty for the next day so that it was very likely that the Dobbs decision was going to be coming down. And I sent an email out to every pro-life group and leader and participant that I could think of in town saying, hey, if anybody needs it, my podium and my PA system will be down there tomorrow for whoever to use. And uh, when I got down there the next day, Kristen Hawkins was there with Students for Life. They wanted to have the podium at the moment the decision came out. And I said, that's fine. We put their signage on the front and from a podium built by a child conceived in rape, the Dobbs decision, the end of Roe v. Wade was announced from my podium that I built with my hands on my PA system that I own and use for pro-life events. So 
All I ask from God is that I'm alive when personhood is declared. And if possible, I'd like it to be from my podium as well. <laughs> a big dream realized and another big dream yet to happen. Ayala, what would you say to a woman who's considering having an abortion? I would say first and foremost that you're strong enough to be a mother and you're strong enough to choose life. And I would say I've done a lot of sidewalk advocacy. I would say the main thing that I hear from girls and women I'm able to talk to is I just just don't feel like I'm ready. I just don't feel like I can do this. They're all variations of I just don't feel strong enough. That's what it is. It's the fear. And I would say like, look, I've been 15 years old and pregnant from rape. And that's kind of the worst case scenario. And I was strong enough. And you are strong enough. We're all strong enough. Women are built to be mothers. And with community support, with care and love, we are absolutely capable of doing what God created us to do, what we have evolved for centuries to do. I mean, we're totally capable. Um, and I think the abortion industry preys on the narrative that women, ironically, are not strong enough to be mothers on their own, that single motherhood is the worst thing that could possibly happen to a woman, that you're, you're condemned for the rest of your life if you're a single mother. But I would beg to differ because the most incredible women in my life are mothers who are making it happen um, despite everything. Well said, well said. Mark? It's that same thing about women being strong. You know, the other side claims to be on the side of women, but they believe women can't do anything if they have a baby. Our side, the pro-life side, is the one that says, no, we believe you can be a mother and go to college and have a good job and be a leader and do great things with your life with a child in your life. A child doesn't take away from a life, it adds to a life. You know, I thank my mother every year on my birthday for my life because she had in her hands the capability of taking my life. But the thing is, is that would not have made her not a mother. That would have just made her the mother of a child that was killed. Also, well said, very good point. Is there anything that you'd like to say that hasn't been said yet? I just think it's important that we don't throw away children conceived in rape. That's always the first exception. Rape, incest, life of the mother. That's always the first to be thrown under the bus. And I just think that's wrong on so many different levels. I would definitely like to say two things for pro-life organizations. I've worked with several pro-life organizations over the years, um, and I feel like they've all done a good job at trying to talk to rape survivors. Um, but I think that a lot of the time they've been missing one of these two things. And the first thing is not to ignore them. I think women who are pregnant from sexual assault need to be spoken directly to because their situation is so much different. And when you have messaging that's simply love your baby, you know, you're already a mother, all this stuff, and it's kind of general and it's never directed towards them specifically, they kind of automatically assume that they're being left out of it because it's like, oh, well, not my baby because my baby was conceived wrong. And of course, like Mark said, you know, it's always the exception to abortion uh, bans, to abortion restrictions. It's always rape and incest, life of the mother. And so you kind of get the idea that even the pro-life movement is saying, well, you know, not your baby, but, you know, most of them. And um, I don't think that's acceptable messaging. And I would also say that when you're talking to women who are pregnant from sexual assault, it needs to be trauma-informed. It needs to be, you know, no implication that you are responsible for your sexual assault. None, none of that, like, victim-blaming messaging. And I've seen that is kind of a problem in the pro-life community, that people don't know how to talk about rape. They don't know how to talk to women who have been raped. And I completely understand that it's very difficult to talk about, but I think it's our responsibility as pro-lifers if we're trying to talk to these women and tell them, you need to keep your baby. Well, you need to be able to talk to her about her life and why she needs to do that. So I think those are probably the two most important things I would say. And if pro-life organizations are able to do that, we'd be able to save so many more lives. Well, I wanna thank you both for sharing your stories, difficult stories, but also stories that end well um, with not only the life, 
but also what you're doing with your experience. Uh, you're just helping so many people. You've heard today there's hope through tragedy, and I want women to know that they don't have to take this journey alone. Life Issues Institute is here to help. You can find a wealth of information and effective resources to protect innocent human life from fertilization to life's natural conclusion. If you've experienced a pregnancy resulting from sexual assault, and if you're comfortable doing so, please share your story with us at lifeissues.org. And as always, we'd like to know what you thought of this program and how it affected you. Visit lifeissues.org. Thank you, friend, for joining us for this Sanctity of Life radio special, Hope Out of Tragedy, hosted by Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. For helpful resources related to today's program, please visit lifeissues.org. Again, that's lifeissues.org. Thanks again for listening to Hope Out of Tragedy from Life Issues Institute, where we help you stay informed, more informed than you've ever been.